I can still remember the day my dad proposed to my mom. No, I was not a twinkle in their eye. I was alive and well. As alive as a ninth grader is, I guess. Now, technically, he's my stepdad. But I don't have a category in my mind for him as a stepdad. He's not like a quasi-dad. He's my dad-dad. This reason will become clear in a second. My biological father, Jim, passed away shortly after I turned 12. And then my mom met my dad-dad, now Kevin, just a couple years later. I actually introduced them, so they kind of owe me big. I'm just kidding. They're probably listening. You do not owe me. When my dad, Kevin, proposed to my mom, he picked all of us up, my mom and the kids, in a limo brought us to his house, into his home. He had written a letter, uh, sweet words that he'd written to my mom. He read it to her, asked for her hand in marriage, declaring his love for her, that he would care for her, provide for her. It was beautiful. She said yes. Then he did something unexpected. He turned to us, the kids. My mom's three kids. We were a troublesome bunch he asked for our permission to marry our mom and for permission to become our dad. He asked if he could be our dad. It was a moment that would change me forever as I would move from fatherless to having a father, to being a son. I'm convinced there's nothing more foundational, more fundamental to one's being an identity than sonship. We come from our fathers. We bear their names. For good or bad, we grow into their likeness. Conversely, there's nothing more transformative for someone who's fatherless than to be adopted, to gain a dad. It is, at least when it's a good dad, it is trajectory changing. It is identity forming. It is life giving as they come under the fatherly care of their new dad. In this morning's text, Paul picks up the idea of adoption. That the Father has adopted us in Christ and by the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be beginning in verse 27. Now last time we saw that Paul had asked the question, why was the law given? We saw that one of the reasons the law was given was to provoke sin in us, that it might prepare us for the Savior as we were under this image of a prison, we were under sin's power, we were under this pedagogue, it was like a nanny, the law, teaching us what we ought to do and punishing us when we don't, then it might drive us to Jesus. And Paul is highlighting the temporary nature of the law. It is passed away now that the seed, the son, faith has come. He tells us in verse 24 that we are justified by faith. Verse 25, that means we're no longer under the law. In verse 26, remarkably, through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is going to be picking up on this image today. He gives us a new image of the law. And that to be under the law is kind of like being a slave. But to be in Christ is to be a son. It is to be adopted. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through chapter 4, verse 7, if you're able, I will ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 
For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Amen. You can be seated. We will split our text into three parts this morning. We will see the seed of Abraham, the slavery of the law, and the spirit of adoption. The seed of Abraham, the slavery of the law, and the spirit of of adoption. I'll just warn you on the front end, my first point is the longest. <laughs> You're getting nervous by the end of it, just know that. First point's the longest. First, the seed of Abraham. Now, if you recall, the Judaizers have been teaching the churches in Galatia that promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. But they were teaching that seed is ethnic Israel. And so if you want the promises of God, you need to get into Israel, which comes by circumcision, and then you stay in Israel through works. They're saying the promise comes by works to Israel. Paul comes along and says something that to them would have sounded radical. No, 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 no. First off, they're promises, which means they're a gift. They're acquired by faith, not by works. And secondly, when God made these promises to Abraham and to his seed, he didn't make it to his seeds, plural. In the most meaningful sense, when God was making a promise to Abraham and to his seed, he was making a, problem, pro, a promise to Abraham and to Christ. Not to every ethnic Jew who would ever live. He was making a promise to Jesus. That is because Jesus would be the only true Jew to ever live. He would be true Israel. That means if you want the promises of God, you don't need to get into ethnic Israel. You need to get into Jesus, true Israel. You need to be identified with him, incorporated into him. You need to be united to him. Paul's going to use this language in the text. You need to be baptized into him, clothed with him. You need to belong to him. You see, the inheritance in Judaism and also in Greco-Roman culture, it goes only to the son. This is why Paul's using the language of son. It didn't go to the daughter. It certainly didn't go to a servant or a slave. It goes to the son. That means we need to become sons. You can think of it like this. The seed is the son. You can become a son by being in the seed, which is Jesus. That's how we become heirs. Paul picks this up, this picture of union with Christ. Verse 27. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. So Paul is grounding the claim that he made in verse 26, where he says that actually it's those of us who have faith. We are the ones who become sons in Christ. And he's explaining how it's because we have been united to the Son. This is how we can become sons. 
that when God sees the Son, He sees us. When He sees us, He sees the Son. That's how intertwined in the mind of God our lives have been with Christ's. And what Paul is saying here, I think, for those of you who were baptized into Christ, have been clothed with Christ, he's speaking about water baptism. And he's doing this for a few reasons, okay? He's saying, when you were baptized into Christ, you've been clothed with Christ. Now, baptism itself, baptism itself doesn't unite us to Jesus, okay? Faith in Christ unites us to Jesus. We see that in verse 26. Uh, later, chapter 4, verse 6, we see it happens by the indwelling of the Spirit. So there's not something magical that's happening when you're thrust into the water. But Paul is so comfortable speaking about baptism this way, as, the, as he's using it interchangeably with union with Christ. And I think he does so for three reasons. I want to give these to us, three that I can think of. First, baptism, it uniquely pictures union with Christ. It shows that we have been immersed into Jesus. It's as though we've been plunged into his reality such that his history becomes our history. Like everything that is his becomes ours. His righteousness, his relationships with the Father, his history is ours as we are clothed in him, submerged into him. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6. Notice the way that he uses baptism and union interchangeably. Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus' history becomes our history. Now this is why baptism is the new covenant sign. It is the one thing that, that as far as I can tell, it stands as an image for the entire salvation complex both of how we participate in Jesus and of the benefits we get from Him. It shows that we've repented and believed, that we've died and have risen to life. It shows that we've been cleansed by the blood, that we've passed through the waters of judgment. It shows that we've been indwelt by the Spirit, that we've been incorporated into the people of God. And when we come out of the water, drenched in the water, clothed in the water, it's as though we've been clothed with Christ. That is how God sees us, clothed in Jesus. Amen. Baptism is telling this person and the world that they are in Jesus and Jesus is in them. Again, baptism doesn't make you a child of God. You might think of it more like adoption papers. It's telling the world. It tells everybody that you are in Christ. Therefore, you are sons and daughters of God. We have been plunged into him in his history and he in us. Such that when God looks at you, he sees his son. When God looks at his son, he sees you. So this is the first reason that Paul is comfortable basically using union and baptism interchangeably. Baptism is the sign for the whole salvation complex. It is giving this external, visible sign of the inward reality that says we've been united to Jesus. Secondly, I think Paul can talk about baptism this way is because he only applies the sign to people who've been converted. Okay? <laughs> Midtown Baptist Church. You know I go here. Paul is baptizing only people, insofar as he can tell, are regenerate, who have professed faith and repentance in Jesus. Look again at verse 27. He says, Those of you who were baptized have put on Christ. 
Your translation might say something like, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That is how confident Paul is. Paul could not say that if he was writing to a mixed congregation. He is confident that those who have been baptized have been clothed with Jesus. Jesus. Because he's only baptizing people he believes are united to Christ. Friends, this is why we baptize believers, not believers and their unbelieving roommates or their unbelieving spouses. This is why we baptize believers and not believers and their unbelieving infants. Verse 27 has never been true of an infant. As many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul has this degree of confidence because they're baptizing Christians. To apply the sign to one who doesn't believe, it divorces the sign from the reality, which is union in Christ, which comes by faith. Okay, and then the third reason why Paul is comfortable speaking about baptism interchangeably with union with Christ is because normally someone is baptized shortly after coming to faith. There ought to be proximity between conversion and baptism. There is no New Testament category for unbaptized Christian. Baptism shows forth the entire salvation complex. It ought to be the first public showing of faith and repentance. It's kind of like the capstone of conversion, you might think of it. I think in Paul's mind, unbaptized Christian would sound like unchristianed Christian. It just wouldn't make any sense to him. Like ununited to Christ Christian. How can you identify as a Christian when you've not identified with God? You've not been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now again, to be clear, I'm not saying if you've not been baptized, you're not a Christian. Baptism doesn't save. Faith in Christ saves. If Paul was saying that we needed to be baptized to be saved, he'd be making the same mistake that Judaizers did with circumcision. He's not doing that. But he can so bring these two together because baptism stands for the whole salvation complex. He's applying it to believers. It's happening shortly after they come to Christ. So baptism doesn't save us. It is fruit of faith that ought to come shortly after becoming a Christian. This is so normal in the early church that Paul could write a verse like this and not be worried about confusing the churches. So he says when we're baptized into Christ, it's like we're being clothed with Jesus. Again, when the Father looks at you, he sees the Son. Just like the water covers our body, all that is his is history, his present, his future, his legal standing, his identity. It becomes ours. We are clothed in him. I love the picture of clothing because of how engrossing it is. It covers its identity forming and expressing. If you look around, I mean, you can learn about people in this room just by what they wear. That's true. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. What we wear, what clothes us, it expresses us. It also forms our identity. Have you ever seen a young kid wear like a hero costume? You know, they put on like a little Black Panther or Iron Man costume. They think they've actually become the hero. It is like the perfect crossroads of creativity and delusion. They think they've really become the hero. They put a mask on and it changes them. Yesterday, a number of our members blessed. They blessed the parents by putting on like a parent's day out. We were able to leave our kids there. They played with them. They pumped them full of sugar and they sent them home. They also gave them these masks, these little dragon masks. 
They put it on, it changes it. This is a true story. You just can't make this up. I guess I could, but I would be a liar. Yesterday, before we leave the Costco, Haddon is wearing his dragon mask. He says, Dad, I don't think I should wear this mask to Costco because people will think I'm a real dragon. <laughs> he said, it's too scary. I don't know. Creativity, delusion. I was like, you're right, buddy. You should probably take it off. Friends, if you have been clothed in Jesus, you take on his identity. And it's not in some make-believe kind of way. It's real because it's real in the mind of God. When he looks at you, he sees his son. Friends, the most transformative identity-grounding reality in your life ought not to be your health, your relationship status, your job, past accolades. It's not even as we'll see your ethnicity, your gender, or your class. It is that you have been clothed in Jesus. Such that what is yours became his. He clothed himself in humanity. More than that, he took on our sin at the cross. And all that is his becomes ours as we are clothed in him. In the mind of God, we are his righteous children. Friends, does that change the way you live? That you've been clothed in Jesus? Does it change the way you think about yourself? The way you think about the other members in this room? Does it change the way you think God thinks about you? It should. Notice there are verbal as- there's a vertical as- aspect of being clothed in Christ. In the eyes of God, we are participating in all the benefits of Jesus. But the Judaizers are saying faith isn't enough. It's not enough to be right with God. You need to become a Jew. Like you need to culturally conform through works, specific works, through circumcision. So Paul is going to say, no, no, no. Verse 28. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Vertically. What Paul is saying is that there is no privileged position before God based on your race, your gender, your class. Like you you either stand before him as a sinner or a son and a daughter. God doesn't care if you are white or brown or something in between. He doesn't care if you're president or if you're poor. He doesn't care if you are a man or a woman. If you have transgressed against his holy law, which you have, you stand condemned. If your hope is in any of that, you will face judgment. Your sin will crush you. You need to be clothed in the sun. This, of course, happens by faith as we put our trust in Jesus. There is this vertical aspect where there's no position of privilege before God. There's also a horizontal aspect. Just as our ethnicity, our class, and our gender don't help or hurt us before God, they shouldn't help or hurt us in here. There is a horizontal element to our union with Christ. Looking at verse 28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Why? Since you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think there are two opposite errors we can make when we're looking at this text. The first is to assume that Paul is pushing this to its limits, and he's completely obliterating race, gender, class. Okay? Paul is not saying the church is androgynous, like there's no difference between boys and girls. He clearly gives instruction to men and women specifically throughout his letters. 
He says that only some qualified men can uh, hold the office of elder, for example. First Timothy 1 in 3. So Paul is not obliterating these distinctions. Like you're filling out the census and it's asking you your gender. You don't say Christian. Race. Well, actually, I'm a Christian. Okay? My experience of life is certainly influenced by the fact that I'm half Caucasian. I'm half Mexican. I'm male. That's an inescapable reality. And none of those things are bad. They are all gifts from God. Your gender, your ethnicity, your class even, gifts from God. God's glory, the grandness of His glory, cannot be contained by one type of culture. And so God has given us that diversity to show forth His greatness to the world. So Paul is not obliterating these distinctions. We could call the first error would be, it's like the error of colorblindness. I don't think Paul's pushing us towards a kind of naive colorblindness. There is an opposite error, which might be more prevalent today, which is to press so hard into these distinctions that it creates division in the church. Okay, the opposite error would be to say that there is Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female, and those are the most meaningful identity markers of a person, such that these people can't have any meaningful communion with one another. Pressing into the distinctions that it creates division, like Jew and Greek can't actually get along. There is a chasm between the two. Friends, our country, I think, is eating itself alive right now over identity issues tied to race, gender, sexuality, class, religion. There are certainly important and honest conversations to be had about our past and our present. What Paul is getting at is for the Christian in the church, our most basic, most foundational identity marker is that we are in Jesus. Again, he's not obliterating any of these other distinctions, but he's bringing this to the top, that we are one in Christ, such that there is no privileged position in here. If you're pressing into identity distinctives in such a way that creates division, you're doing something wrong. Like if you think a free Jewish male is so basic to identity, such that they can't have anything to do with a Greek female slave, then you misunderstand what it means for us to be one in Christ. In the Judaizer's mind, there is a chasm so great between Jew and Gentile, they cannot have communion. It can't be bridged. A Gentile can become a Jew, but they're no longer Gentile. The chasm exists. It remains. Friends, there ought to be no such chasms in this church. There is no gulf in here. There ought not to be between male and female, between white and black, between Hispanic and Asian, between rich and poor. Without dissolving these differences, the gospel brings to the front something more basic. That in Christ we've joined a new humanity. We've all together been clothed in Jesus. We partook in the same baptism. We're indwelt by the same spirit. We eat from the same table. We have the same Father. What is remarkable is that we can actually be diverse, legitimately diverse. We can enjoy it, we can express it, because our unity is not grounded in something shallow. We don't have to be pitted as enemies against one another because we're not. In the Gospel, we become brothers and sisters as we share the same Father. Our unity ought to be grounded in something transcendent. 
That doesn't mean it's easy, but it means it's possible. Friends, this ought to be evident in the type of friendships we build here in this church. And the way we eagerly give ourselves to singing songs that might not match our taste. And the way we eagerly submit to preaching that might not be our preference. In the way we intentionally build relationships with people who don't look like us, don't talk like us, maybe don't own the same things as us. People even who on non-essential issues think differently than us. Friends, if you are struggling to think well of your brothers and sisters who are different than you, the first thing you should do is repent. Then I would encourage you to fight and think about your brothers and sisters as being clothed in Jesus. Fight to think about them as God thinks about them. If you can, recall their baptism. In the Lord's kindness, over the last year we've been able to baptize a diversity of folks. Just off the top of my head thinking about we baptized Grace, Christina, Hunter, Ashley, Shashi. Chances are you do not have something in common with most of those people's names that I've said. But what we do have in common is that we are in Jesus. We are one in Christ. If you're fighting, if you're fighting to be unified to your brothers and sisters, recall the image of their baptism. Like I can bring to mind the baptism of Shashi. As he's coming out of the water, as he's clothed in water, I can recall that he is clothed in Christ. They are in the sun. His history is theirs. They believe in Him. They have the same Spirit, the same Father. They then are my brother or my sister. Friends, we can show the world that the Gospel really works. And we can do that in the way that we love each other. In the way that even though there is diversity, there is a greater degree of unity because it's rooted in something transcendent, which is the Son. Friends, I wonder, who can you pursue in our church this week that the world would tell you not to? Perhaps because of the chasm, what appears a chasm between you and them based on their class, their age, their education, their culture, their ethnicity. Who among your neighbors can you reach out to who are different than you, that you might love and befriend and share the gospel with and serve? Friends, we have been baptized into Christ, which means we've been clothed with Christ. It also means we belong to Christ. It means we're Abraham's seed. Look at verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Being united to Jesus means not only are we baptized into him and clothed with him, but we belong to him. He is the seed. If we're in him, we become the seed. We become the son, so to speak, and the promises that were made to him were made to us. The inheritance is ours. Now, there's a problem, though, and it's that apart from Christ and under the law, we're less like sons and more like slaves, Paul's going to say. This brings us to our next point, which is the slavery of the law. The slavery of the law. That those under the law are less like sons and actually more like slaves. Paul has been stressing in this chapter the temporary nature of the law. He did so by putting forth those images, right, of the law as a prison, the law as a pedagogue, and now he's going to put forth the law as um, creating slaves, basically. To be under the law is a bit like being under slavery. Verse 1. Now, I say that along as an heir is a child, 
He differs in no way from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. Instead, he's under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So in Greco-Roman culture, if you're wealthy, you would acquire slaves who would basically raise your children for you. Now, people do that now, too. Rich people, they hire folk to raise their kids. It must be really nice. Okay, and they would do this until the time set by the father. That is, at some point, they grow up, they become the heir, and the inheritance is theirs. But while your child, Paul's saying, in Greco-Roman culture, at least, there's not much of a difference between you and a slave. Like, you're in the same house, but it doesn't belong to you. You don't have any money. You might try to tell people what to do. They're not listening. Right? One day, everything is yours, but right now, you're a child. Paul is saying, in Greco-Roman culture, it's not that different from a slave. No money, no rights, no authority. Kids do what they're told when they're told. They're supposed to, at least. Paul's saying, this is a bit what it's like being under the law. You see, a promise was made that one would come to crush the head of the snake. Like, one would come to sit on the throne of David. He would build the temple. He would restore Israel. He would remove the curse as far as it's found. In him we would be justified, actually forgiven once and for all. Our sins would be dealt with. But until that promise came, it's as though Israel was like a child under the law which made them sort of like a slave. They knew about the promise, but it wasn't theirs yet. This is what it's like trying to revert back to the law. Verse 3, in the same way we also, so this is the analogy, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. There was a time before Christ that we were in a type of slavery. It's an inescapable power. And it's to it, Paul says, the elements of the world. Now, it's not altogether clear what Paul means by elements of the world. In verse 9, he uses the same phrase to talk about spiritual powers. That might be what he has in mind. Most commentators seem to think that right here Paul is talking about the law, which makes sense. He's talking about being under the law. You look at that preposition under in particular. Thus far, he's said that we are under a curse because we don't obey the law. We are under sin's power because we're under the law. We're under the law. We're under a guardian. We're under trustees. He's about to say that Christ came to be under the law. So I think that's what Paul means by elements of the world. Your translation might say elementary principles. It's like... The law was a grade school meant to teach you the basics while you were a kid. Okay, so you're under the law as a child, learning the basics. It was temporary. It was to prepare us for the gospel. Now, don't miss the irony here. The Judaizers want us to think that we've graduated from the gospel to the law. To which Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The law was like an elementary school. We've graduated from it to the gospel. One commentator put it well when they said, returning to the law after the gospel would be like a PhD graduate, which is the highest degree that you can earn in education. It'd be like a PhD graduate returning to do kindergarten or preschool. Like it's not just kind of a step backwards. We're talking about a huge movement backwards. We don't graduate from the gospel to the law. The law was like this grade school teaching us and preparing us until Christ would come to redeem us from it. So it taught us the basics, but it couldn't actually make us what it commanded. We know that there's a promise, but it's far off. So even though we're children, we're kind of like a slave, Paul said. How can we get the promise? Well, we need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Verse 4 and 5. When the time came to completion, 
God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. I think this might be one of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture. When the time came to completion, Paul says in Ephesians that it was at the fullness of time. It was then that God sent his son. Friends, the gospel was not a backup plan. It's not plan B. It was and is the plan of God determined by God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in eternity past. And all of human history was moving toward it. And at the right moment, not too soon, not too soon, not too late, the Father sends the Son. It is when time itself came to completion. It was after Israel's failing, after Noah's failing, after Israel's failings, after David's failing, after the law's inability to grant life. It was when the law had served its purpose, its function as a prison, as a teacher, as a school. It had ripened the hearts of men to make them desperate for a Savior. At the right time, God sent His Son, His only Son, His pre-existent Son, the one co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. God sent His beloved Son to save the likes of us. Now, salvation is of the Lord. It must come from God. Amen. But it has to also come from a man. We are the ones who have transgressed against God. The debt is ours. We deserve the punishment. We are the ones who need to live righteously. And we lack the ability to do so. And so God sends his son to become a man. Look at the text that says there right next. He was born of a woman. He was made like us in every way except for sin. This is how he could represent us. By becoming one of us. He took what was ours that he might give us what is his. He had to become a man. But not just any man. He was born, look next, he was born under the law. We saw this in the scripture reading of Hosea chapter 11 that Israel was regarded as God's son, but they failed. Adam was regarded as God's son, but he failed before him. David and his sons were regarded as God's sons, and they failed too. God the son in time became a man. The perfect son became a perfect human son. That in him we might become sons. He comes under the law to redeem us from the law. This, of course, is the gospel. The father sends the son to pay the price of his blood to save us. He redeems us. This image of redemption I've spoken about in Galatians, but it's an economic term. You would buy a slave and you would set them free. So what a common scenario might look like, let's say a neighboring a nation invaded your town and they took off your brother and your sister back to their town, back to their nation to sell them as slaves in the market. You make your way into hostile territory, into the marketplace. You bid the highest price to redeem your brother and your sister that you might send them home to the Father. Friends, is this not what Jesus did? The Father sends the Son into hostile territory to pay the price of His blood that He might send us home to the Father. If you're not a Christian, this is the Gospel. That in Christ we can have forgiveness and a Father in God. It comes to us by faith. We would encourage you this day to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus. 
to grab hold of him by faith, to be united to him. The Son comes to redeem us, we see. And there's a second purpose, a complementary purpose, that's there in the text. Let's read verses 4 and 5 again. When the time came to completion, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Friends, Christ's atonement was a means to an end, to adoption, to communion, to familial intimacy. Forgiveness leads to the Father. We come now to our last point, the spirit of adoption, that in Christ Jesus we are adopted as sons and daughters. It happens as we are united to Him by faith and as we are indwelled by the Spirit. We see that redemption is at the heart of the Gospel. There are no benefits of Christ apart from His atoning sacrifice. Justice had to be satisfied. But adoption, is there a greater benefit, a more beautiful reality than that God the Father calls us His children? Jack Hacker is right, I think, when he says, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Friends, Jesus came to make you his brothers and sisters. Jesus doesn't just give us his relation, his righteousness. He gives us his relationship with the Father. This ought to be mind-blowing to us. As we think about our triune God, we speak about God existing in three persons. They're consubstantial with one another. It means they partake in the same essence. I'm going to use some kind of jargon here, but you'll see what we're getting to. They each possess the same essence, which is to say that they're each God. Like, there's not a difference between the Godness of the Son and the Father and the Spirit. The one thing that we would say distinguishes the Son from the Father, we call this a personal attribute, is that He is Son. What distinguishes the Father? It's that He's Father. The one thing that's unique to Jesus, He shares with us. His Sonship. His relationship with the Father. The Father. Eternally the Father of the Son. He's willing to share that with us. To call us his children. What is God's by nature of his being. He gives to us by grace through adoption. That in Jesus, like Jesus, we become sons and daughters. Us, those of us bent on overthrowing his kingdom. We are not only forgiven. We are given a family name. We are brought to the table. And we become heirs. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We see the triune God at work as God sends His Son. We saw earlier, now God sends the Spirit. We know in John 14, 26, the Father and the Son send the Spirit together. So not only does the Spirit objectively unite us to Christ by faith, but He subjectively assures us that we are in Him. I think John Scott put it well when he said that adoption was secured by Christ. And it's assured by the Spirit. Friends, no doubt the world, the devil, your flesh, war against you to make you think you do not belong to God. That you could never be his son or his daughter. And God, in his kindness, sends the Son of his Spirit into your heart. 
to cry out that we are indeed His children. And what does the Spirit cry out in our hearts? Look at the text again. Abba, Father. If you know the Gospels well, you know that this is how Jesus referred to God. As Abba, Father. The words that Jesus spoke, His Spirit puts on our hearts. Abba, Father. If you were a fly on the wall of my house, you would hear a conversation that me and my kids have basically every day and multiple times a day. It goes something like this. Adam, you're my son. To which he replies, you are my father. Pavey, you're my daughter. To which he replies, you are my father. Haddon, you are my father and I am your son. Wait, I think I said that wrong. <laughs> you are my son and I am your father. To which he replies, you are my father and I am your son. Now what's funny about that is Pavey actually, she'll walk up to me, just this beautiful, serious face, deep eyes. She'll grab my hand, she looks me, looks right at me, she says, you are my father and you are my daughter. <laughs> oh, you're so close. I don't even think we're that far in 2021 yet, but. But I tell them, you are my son, you are my daughter. They repeat, I am your daughter, I am your son. We say these four little words and they're packed with meaning. That even them as toddlers, they grasp. They can't comprehend the fullness of it, but they grasp it. When I'm saying, I am your father, I'm speaking about origin, about intimacy, about identity. I am your father. Origin, I'm saying, you are from me. You don't have two dads or three dads or four dads. I am your dad. I'm speaking about intimacy, that I love you. I have your good in mind. I will protect you from harm. I will provide for your needs. I will punish you when you are in error for your good. I'm speaking about identity. You bear my name and my likeness. That is but a shadow of what we have with the Father. The, the Spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, and it's loaded with meaning. It is like God is saying, you are my son, you are my daughter. And His own Spirit in us is crying back, you are my Father. Friends, I'm not sure how you think about God, but the first image that ought to come to your mind is Father. Mark put it well when he said, not all of us have had good experiences with dads that can make it difficult. I would encourage you to fight to have a biblical picture of Father. So that when you think about God, you think about Heavenly Father. And when you think about yourself, the first image that comes to mind is son or daughter. Not servant, but son. Servants don't call the owner of the house daddy. Mr. Carson in Downton Abbey always says, Lord Grantham. Jeffrey in The Fresh Prince always says, Master Banks. They might be close, they might be friends, but they're not family. They'll never say dad. But in Christ, the Lord himself becomes our father. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And 
if a son, then God has made you an heir. Everything that belongs to the son becomes ours. From his righteousness to his relationship with the father. His kingdom, it becomes ours. There's a line in Yet Not I But Through Christ to Me that just blows my mind every time we sing it. How strange and divine I can sing all is mine. Yet not I but the Christ in me. All that is the Son's, which is everything, becomes ours. From his righteousness to his relationship with God. In Christ we get Jesus and we get the Father. Friends, is there a more incredible reality? Is there a better gospel out there? Is there better news you will hear today than that God would send His Son to redeem you from under the curse of the law that you might become His children? I cannot think of something more joy-giving, more identity-forming, more unity-grounding than the truth that in Christ we are sons and daughters and therefore brothers and sisters with each other and with Him. Our big brother is the King. And we have been clothed with Him. That ought to change the way we live and the way we love one another. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed with Your kindness to us this morning. That though we were rebels of Your kingdom, You not only forgave us, but You've made us Your sons and Your daughters. That You have clothed us in Jesus such that when you look at us, you see the Son. When you look at the Son, you see us. We pray that that indeed would change the way that we live. That we would be eager to put to death the flesh. That we would be eager to walk by the Spirit that resides in us. That we would be eager to live in unity with one another. Father, we pray that it would be true for all the world as they see that we are one in Christ Jesus. Would you safeguard that unity of our church? Help us to delight this day to think about the fact that in your Son we have become sons and daughters. It is in His name and by your Spirit we pray. Amen. Amen. We get to close our time by singing one final hymn. If you have your bulletins, I'll direct your attention to page 11, Arise, My Soul, Arise. This, whole, this hymn is about how we don't have to be fearful before God. The first verse, Arise, My Soul, Arise, Shake Off Thy Guilty Fears. The reason being is that Jesus is interceding on our behalf. And what the hymn writer Wesley points out is that God is not going to turn away the presence of His Son. He can't and He won't. And in the Son we become sons and God is not going to turn away us. Verse 4, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, with confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let's stand and join the Spirit as He puts His own words in our hearts. Let's sing them out loud that God is indeed Abba, Father.